here's where you have to know how to drop your golf ball. Sure speeds up play when you have those drop areas. Fowler has dropped the ball twice. The Shambo is going to get a free drop. Something bad has happened if we end up here. This is the drop zone. All right, folks, Dylan DeChair here, and welcome to the Drop Zone. Got a little bit of a, a funny thing going on this week. It's just going to be me bringing you in for the introduction. Uh, our friend Sean Zock is asleep across the pond. If you missed last week's episode, Sean has taken up kind of an artist's residence in St. Andrews for the, the summer. So he's going to be there June, July, and August. He'll be there for the Open Championship. Um, I'll join him that week. But in the meantime... With an eight-hour time difference, it means some scheduling challenges for the drop zone. We're going to get creative with that. Uh, I have no interest in being kind of a Jim Rome, Ryan Russillo solo at the mic type. So we'll definitely try to keep this to a minimum. But I do want to uh, to mention a couple things before we get to our interview with Mike Wan. Uh, the first thing I want to mention is our sponsor, and that's Radmore Golf. Our local friends from Radmore just put on a terrific event at the local pitch and putt, raising some money, embedding themselves with the good people of Seattle. Uh, I went there, had some clam chowder, cocktail, and played nine quick holes, and uh, good times were had by all. So Radmore is doing everything they can not to just help the community, but also to help your wardrobes. Head to radmoregolf.com. That's R-A-D-M-O-R golf.com. Pick up a fresh hoodie, maybe even, I guess, a short sleeve tee now that it's summertime. Use code DROPZONE at checkout for 25% off. That's code DROPZONE at checkout, radmoregolf.com. All right, folks. I mean, just to buzz quickly across what you need to know for this week, Minji Lee and Billy Horschel each threw down commanding victories. Um, Strangely enough, each one at 13 under and second place was nine under and third place was seven under in both tournaments. So kind of a weird parallel thing going on there. Definitely Minji Lee was the rock star of the week. Uh, LPGA has felt like a two player race uh, for, you know, I guess over a year now between Jin Young Ko and Nelly Korda. And it feels like Minji Lee is entering that conversation. I mean, she won. Uh, she won two starts ago at the Founders Cup. She was third at the LA Open. Just before that, she's been racking up uh, top fives, top tens. And God, she really played some impressive golf down the stretch on Sunday when Pine Needles suddenly got really, really difficult. Uh, her round of even par was basically as good as it got in the field. And uh, there were technically maybe two rounds better than that. But Minji Lee is... I guess a star who has arrived now with multiple major championships. Uh, she's going to be number three in the world. So I would say that, that, you know, she's obviously on your radar now, but don't expect her to go anywhere. Um, on the men's side, Billy Horschel took care of business. He'd amassed a large lead headed to Sunday. Memorial was kind of a funny tournament on Sunday. There were a bunch of super high scores. Francesco Molinari was battling to break 80 after getting himself in contention. Uh, Rory was went out in 41, I believe. So the low scores that it would have needed to put a charge into Billy Horschel never quite materialized. Uh, Aaron Wise was runner-up. Billy Horschel now putting together a, a resume of... Uh, pretty impressive wins when you actually run through it and adding memorial and invitational to that resume pretty good stuff it's tough this week to talk about golf 
without musing about what's going to happen in the next couple of days. That's thanks to um, what has happened with Liv, uh, the latest developments, and also what we're assuming is going to be a final announcement, whether or not that includes Phil Mickelson here in the next couple of days, that's going to change the tenor of uh, the entire series. So yes, we are going to see the first live event outside of London later this week. Still trying to figure out if Sean is going to be there on the ground. It's interesting times for the golf world. Kevin Na spoke openly about uh, his decision to leave. I'm not sure we learned a ton about his actual rationale, but we did learn that he's resigning his PGA Tour membership, which uh, caused a lot of head shaking at the memorial. What that means mostly is that I think he's dodging, you know, any awkwardness that comes from a, a PGA Tour player being suspended from uh, from the tour and then trying to play other major championships. I mean, we're gearing up for probably some interesting drama related to this and then a whole bunch of uninteresting litigation. Um, and to avoid any more uninteresting drivel for me, I think we should kick it to our interview with Mike Wan. Mike Wan is, of course, uh, the USGA CEO. He was an 11-year LPGA Tour commissioner, and now he's transitioned over to another big-time gig. We were set up to talk to Mike about you know, his career, why he thinks he's the man for the job, what he actually thinks the job is, and, uh, and then talk to him about the U.S. Women's Open, which just handed out a massive $10 million purse, $1.8 million for Minji Lee, uh, which absolutely blew away the the previous biggest purse in LPGA history. So a lot of exciting stuff there. We did touch on um, Liv. We touched on, uh, we, we did not, you know, and, and if we'd had a couple more days, I would have loved to ask him specifically whether players were going to be suspended from the U.S. Open. But reading between the lines of his answers, I think that my guess is that they will not be suspended. Players that go to live, uh, even if they are suspended from the PGA Tour, I expect we're going to see a strange situation where they do show up at Brookline the next week. I don't know. You can hear for yourself, um, decide for yourself. But I think you'll find it's a fun conversation. I think a lot of people... Um, you know, people have very mixed feelings about the USGA, but I'm guessing if you listen to Mike Wan for a little bit, you'll probably get the sense that, you know, he has the organization headed forward, uh, moving in a, in a progressive direction, I guess, um, with some outside the box thinking with some strong leadership and definitely with, um, a determination to put the ball in other people's hands. So that's enough of me. Here's Mike Wan and me and Sean Zock. All right, Sean, joining us today is the man from the USGA, Mr. Mike Wan, joining us charitably from U.S. Women's Open Week. Mike, it's a busy few weeks for you, but maybe it always is. No, it's a, it's a busier week than usual. U.S. Women's Open is a, uh, takes it up a notch, but that's fun. I mean, this is, these are fun weeks, and I can see players walking outside my uh, my door there. We're about midway through day one. So it's an exciting time. Good, It's a good week for the game and obviously a great week for the women's game. Is it warm down there? Yeah, it's uh, high 90s today, but uh, supposed to be mid 80s the next few days. So um, I was melting this morning, so I'm hoping for a better couple of days. Uh, Mike, we wanted to kind of start at the beginning with you. Uh, both of us were former golf course employees growing up and 
I kind of just wanted to get going with your start in golf and ask you what you learned working on a course maintenance crew. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I know a lot of people can tell you about the summer they worked on a course maintenance crew, but I can probably <laughs> tell you about seven summers on a course maintenance crew. It's um, Most of my friends thought I was nuts because most of my friends worked in the pro shop and like, hey, we get tips and we can we get air conditioning and, you know, we, we wear nice clothes and look at you with your hard hat and your tank top, you know, uh, at 5.30 in the morning arrival. But um, but what they never seemed to grasp is I was done at 2.30. I'd go home, I'd take a nap, and then I could play golf at the course, you know, for any time from 4.30 on. So um, my deal was get up at 5, work from 5.30 to 2.30, sleep from quarter to 3 to quarter to 4, and be teeing it off at 4 o'clock. And uh, it was, uh, uh, A, I mean, I, I probably live the same life now I live then. I'm an early riser, and I haven't seen the 11 o'clock news since I was 30. Um, cause I don't, I don't stay up that long, but, um, yeah, I think you learn the value of teamwork. I think you pretty quickly realize that, um, you're never going to be the smartest guy in the room when you're standing around, uh, uh, superintendents that actually went to school to understand this stuff. And, um, I would say at age 57, uh, I still believe in the value of team. I still wake up early every morning and I still realize that I've never been the smartest guy in the room. And on a really good day, I leave the office early and I'm teeing it up by four o'clock. So that's um, none of those things have changed. <laughs> what was your best skill working on the golf course? Mine was, I think, cleaning the clubs. I was really good at that. And then using the wet towels to whip my coworkers. What was your go-to skill? Well, my boss would have told you that I was the, I was the best greens cutter. Um, it's a, it doesn't sound like much, but um, you know, cutting greens, keeping a, keeping an edge with the apron is a bit of a skill. And um, I used to think it was funny that he'd think that because usually I was dressed from whatever I went out in the night before, you know, Sunday morning <laughs> at five o'clock, you're driving to a barn, you know, but um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I'm a, I'm, 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 I'm a meticulous guy. I like things in order. If you're going to do it, I like to do it really well. And uh, you know, what came to greens, I was really proud of when I finished, you know, what that green looked like and how it rolled. And I was, a, and I played. So I think unlike some of the other people in the maintenance crew, like I, I understood the value of a, of a really good hole location or, um, or, or cutting the greens. But if I was being honest, I spent almost one half of one whole summer building one of those concrete walls around a lake. Um, and he must have thought I was good at that because every day he'd say, Juan, you got lake duty. And there's nothing more <laughs> miserable, you know, than standing in three foot of water, trying to, you know, put a cement wall with a really cool railroad tie top on it. And at the end, it looked beautiful, but I um, I hated that lake until the day, even to this day, <laughs> if I was playing over that par three, I'd want to throw up because all I can think about is my summer spent on that wall. Gosh, that's really funny. So you grew up playing uh, playing a bunch of sports. Is that right, Mike? Yeah, I was a football and baseball player. I guess basketball until, until high school, but football and baseball mostly and football and golf always conflicted. I'm not sure I could have been much of a high school uh, golf guy, but I, but I never really had that option because football was kind of sport number one. So yeah, it was, uh, uh, it was, it was always something I worked at, but not something I competed at. You've been very self-deprecating in our experience about your high school football career, but tell us a little bit about it. And, and are you selling yourself short? Uh, no, unfortunately. I mean, I don't have to be <laughs> self-deprecating. You could call somebody else who played with me and they could they could actually fill in even more of the pain. Um, but I love, I love the game. I, you know, I, I was, when I was nine years old, I told, I heard a coach say to my father, you know, your son's not very big, so we can't put him on the offensive line. He's not very fast. So we can't really put him in receiver. He's not that tough. So I don't think he could handle, you know, carrying the ball. 
Um, and so my dad, I remember my dad saying, should we come back next year? You know, my dad bailed on me in like five seconds. And the coach said, you know, he, he really has learned the offense in like three days. He's very comfortable telling other kids what to do. And, um, and he sort of knows what everybody's job is when he calls the play. So we're going to try him at quarterback. And the, the famous part of that phrase was, and this is true because I can still hear it to this day, as long as he's willing to get the ball out of his hands and in somebody else's hands pretty quickly, um, then I think he could be just right for this team. And I mean, I'm embarrassed to say at 57, I still know the offense probably better than anybody else. I still don't have enough skill to be the ball carrier, very comfortable calling the play, very comfortable telling other people what to do. And generally, whatever play I call, it doesn't end up in me carrying the ball. And um, and, and that's uh, so I learned that skill early. And it's 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 uh, it's embarrassingly true, um, but it's been good for me throughout my business career. So what was your favorite pass route to throw? Uh, 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 we called it an out and up. It's not, it's probably now called a wheel pattern, you know, where you, you fake a 10 yard out because most defensive backs figured all I could throw was a 10 yard <laughs> out. So when I would go to fake an out, they, they jumped the route because they, A, I had a weak arm and B, they figured that's as far as I could throw it. And once a DB jumps the route and the guy turns up, I didn't have to throw it too far to look like I threw a deep <laughs> touchdown pass. It was the greatest in stat padding. You throw a 20 yard pass, the kid would run for 60 yards and it would look like a 60 yard completion in the stat. So I had a ton of yards passing, but the ball was only in the air a very short period of time because I didn't have a strong enough arm to go deep. <laughs> My man, Tom Brady knows a thing or two about that. Just kind of <laughs> dump it off nope. in the right spot and get your guy, but he might've had a little bit stronger arm. I don't yeah, know. Somewhere Tom Brady just threw up in his mouth <laughs> by the comparison, but I appreciate the idea. <laughs> Uh, is it true that you've you spent some significant portion of your career selling toothpaste, among other things? Yeah, when I got out of school, I went to Procter & Gamble uh, in what they call brand management. Um, what, what's nice is nobody writes about the fact that I was the brand manager of Metamucil before I was the brand manager of Press. Oh. So, um, two topics that my wife would like me to stop talking about. But um, <laughs> yeah, Crest Toothpaste was sort of my claim to fame and taking Crest uh, globally. Uh, so yeah, if you want to talk about gum health and tartar control, I'm your guy. Well, I mean, how do you make, how do you, what's the key to making toothpaste kind of sexy? <laughs> making sure that dentists recommend it to their patients. It's uh, it's no different than uh, wanting uh, uh, Rory McElroy to play your driver when you're tailor-made because um, I want what the experts want. And so in the case of Crest, um, I spent most of my time, effort, and money making sure the dentist viewed us as the best toothpaste because if they did, uh, retail sales took care of itself. Interesting. How does does that role prepare you for a role in the golf world? Did it yeah. at all? <laughs> Is there um, you, a know, connection? you know, it's funny. I read this uh, scripture one time that said, God's not preparing you for today's challenge, but for tomorrow's challenge. And I remember when I was interviewing to be the LPGA commissioner, I said in an interview, which is really a wrong way to start, I'm pretty sure I'm not your guy, but tell me more about what you're looking for. And maybe I can, maybe I know the person you're looking for. Um, which is a terrible way to start an interview. But um, um, I realized, you know, back, if you go back to 2009 in the LPGA, the brand was kind of going global and didn't know it. So, you know, they players were starting to come from all over the world. There was starting to be interest in television rights and other parts of the world. There was um, the idea that sponsors and tournaments could actually take place in other countries than America was all fairly new and foreign. And I think the LPGA was, to be honest, it was, was scared about it. They didn't know they didn't know what to do. They remembered a day when they drove to every event and everybody was an American or a European. And um, so back to your original question, what I learned at Procter & Gamble is taking brands global. Um, I learned that, you know, expanding Crest into Mexico or Europe or, or Russia or, or Australia 
wasn't easy. It wasn't fun. But the end, I always take going global is like, like a train going through a tunnel. In the beginning, it gets really dark. And every part of your body says, go back to the light. And so a lot of companies start to go global and go, well, this sucks. And they turn around and go back. Mm -hmm. And I kind of met the LPGA when they were in the beginning of the tunnel. And a lot of people were screaming, let's go back. And so when I walked in and they told me what they were challenged with, I said, well, what if you, what if you had somebody that could lead you to the other side of the tunnel and, and could help you get TV deals in every country and actually bring sponsors in from around the world and invite players that are good enough to reach this stage. And I think um, I think it was strange, but I remembered at the time thinking P&G probably prepared me for this, but at the time I didn't know what P&G was preparing me for. So I think between P&G and then when I went to TaylorMade and Adidas, we took the TaylorMade mm -hmm. brand global. Uh, I was a CEO of a hockey equipment company that we went from being a regional U.S. company to a global business. So I'd, I'd had three real major experiences in going global. And I met this tour that needed to go global, but didn't know it. And are there specific challenges that uh, that you face in the golf world that are that are just you wouldn't necessarily see in other sports or in other business sectors? Yeah, you know, um, you know, in the in the sports world, especially as the commissioner of the LPGA, um, uh, these athletes weren't my employees. They weren't in a, they weren't in a union contract. Um, they could do what they wanted to do. And, um, and quite frankly, if the Japanese tour was stronger than the LPGA tour, that's where they'd have gone and played. So, you know, my job was to provide the, you know, the greatest stage in golf. And if I provided that, then the best would come from all around the world. And if the best came from all around the world, I could sell my TV rights to wherever they were from. So when the Jutana guard sisters came from Thailand, People in Thailand wanted to watch them. They're, they're the best female athletes in their country. So I sold my TV rights to Thailand for a million dollars a year. Or if, you know, if uh, So Yun Yu came and won the U.S. Open and was going to stay in America, I could sell my TV rights to Korea. So, um, yeah, it was it was different. I, I felt like I needed to create I needed to create the circus that everybody wanted to work in. And if I could create that circus then that circus could make money. But in the case of the women's game, there's probably only one circus that makes money. There's not seven. So the question was, how could we become the best tour in the world, not the best tour in America? And if we could do that, we could create real financial opportunity for these women. That was, um, that's different than anything. You know, when you're, when you're P&G or TaylorMade or Adidas, it, you know, it's your shoes, it's your manufacturing facility, it's your employees. Um, and uh, all you really have to do is make shoes and sell them to consumer. But this one, this one was slightly different animal. And, and quite frankly, these athletes had to trust you. They had to trust that you were doing what was right for you. So, I mean, um, I spent a lot of time with a lot of parents, a lot of players, a lot of caddies, um, hearing things that weren't easy to hear, but, but making sure that they viewed me as part of their team, not just some guy running a tour. Yeah. I think, uh, frankly, I think Jay Monahan's doing a lot of that right now, trying to talk to players and, and get out there and be vocal and be visible probably even more so than, than Tim Fincham did when he was in that role. Uh, how important is that? I know you said it's important, but like as the commissioner, how important is it just to be visible, be there so someone can come and talk to you? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of ways to be a commissioner and the way I was, isn't the only way. And I've said this to many people, there's, there's probably a more sane way to be commissioner than I was going to every event every week. You know, it's funny you bring up Jay. I, I, um, I went over for literally six hours to the Memorial this week um, to meet with the player advisory council and then spend some time with Jack and Jack's table and present some of the stuff we're working on at the USGA. And, you know, when all, when I was over there, all this live stuff happened. And I'll just say this, I mean, I, nothing to do with Saudi or what's going on there is, isn't my, isn't my um, area of expertise, but 
I had a first row seat to watch an incredible leader guide this game through COVID. And that wasn't me. That was Jay. Um, Jay got the game golfing again, not the tour, um, not the LPGA. He got golf golfing again. Um, you know, I remember Jay called me one time about April and said, how soon do you get back on tour? And I said, I'm thinking November. And he said, I'm thinking four weeks. And I said, Jay, you know, what's the rush? we got a lot to figure out. And he said, Mike, get your team up. We were in Daytona. He's in Punta Vida. Get your team up here. Meet with my team. I think we can guide you guys back faster than you think. And I said, Jay, I'm really not in a rush. Like, I'm nervous about this whole thing. And he said, if you don't want to go, don't go. But don't go because of, of fear. Let me take you through everything we've learned. And um, four weeks after he started, we started. And it was a good three or four months faster than I thought I'd get my athletes back on. And through his team and through what we learned, we went to uh, all kinds of state governments and proved that golf was a safe thing to play. It's hard to re remember now how much we all feared being by other human beings in you know, of mm -hmm. April of 2020. But because of Jay's leadership, his members won, my members won, and golf got back on track. I find it um, ironic and, quite frankly, um, pitiful that, um, that Jay would have to prove himself to anybody. I mean, I don't know if those athletes remember, but um, it would have been more easy to just shut down and say, see you in 2021, and Jay wouldn't have it. And, um, and despite me and some others saying, Jay, slow down, we're in no rush. And him saying, follow me, I got a plan. And uh, I haven't said this about a lot of people because in my life, you know, I've, I've, had, I've had leaders I've enjoyed, but none that I've, I've watched that close. And um, I'm proud of Jay. I'm proud of the fact that he took the time to take me along. And he could have hopped in the car and taken off and he didn't. And uh, man, did he, did he make the game of golf better? And in, in all this weirdness that's going on now, somehow we're forgetting about a guy who deserves to be recognized as, again, nothing to do with, I don't care where players play or what they want to play. That's, that's their own decision. But we should never question whether or not Jay's a great leader because uh, uh, we all benefited from his leadership. Yeah, and when you talk about your experience then creating the, you know, the best international circus, essentially, for, uh, for women's professional golf, I mean, what do you make of the current landscape? It seems like guys are getting pulled in more directions than they ever have. Obviously, the live stuff is is coming to a head more than it has. I think we've um, I, I've said this and I probably shouldn't say this because I think I got quoted once. But for what it's worth, I mean, I um, I feel like I've wasted six months of my life talking about a PowerPoint presentation, um, which is great. I mean, maybe it'll turn into an event or a series of events or whatever's going to turn into fine. Um, but I feel like. Uh, Listen, I've been, I was commissioner for 12 years. I've been in this job for one year. I've seen my share of PowerPoint presentations of, of disruptors that are going to change golf forever. And, um, and 99 of the 100 never happened. And maybe this will be the one, and that's fine. Um, but what I do know about golf and about selling golf tournaments and tours is you can get really wealthy people to do something in the beginning, to launch something, because that's how you know, they're, they think like entrepreneurs. But you got about a year, maybe 18 months, to show whoever wrote that really huge check that that check they wrote is going to turn into a money-making venture. Uh, people don't become billionaires by being clueless. And I can tell you that nobody's going to shovel hundreds of millions of dollars into, into a series or, or an event or a tour unless that event can turn into something. I mean, USFL, you can get it off the ground, but if you want to keep it off the ground, it better, it better figure out how to be liquid pretty soon. At this point, I've never heard about one TV deal. I haven't heard about one title sponsor. I haven't heard about one, you know, one revenue generating thing. And that's fine. And it might be a really cool payday for a few guys for a while. But, you know, for me to believe this is going to be around long term, it's going to have to turn into more than a wealthy person or two. 
um, because wealthy people at some point expect the return. And um, so I'm going to sit back and see kind of where it plays out. But at some point, it's going to have to return. And uh, I don't know if anybody's really asking those questions, but that's that's the risk. Is it could be the greatest one year, um, but to be a, to be a great fifty years, it's going to have to be a business. Yeah, you you use a lot of business thoughtful wording there. I think uh, that's got to be well said, Sean. Yeah, a lot of a lot of your job is being a business thinker, and I think people in our position they look at commissioners, they look at at CEOs of of these governing bodies. And we kind of think that that they think on our level, uh, and I just know that we're not thinking at the high level of of Jay Monahan measuring up however many events that can be sponsored. You know how many sponsors are required for every single tournament. And I know on this podcast alone, we've definitely done some conjecture that's probably unfair. Well, I'll give you a great example. I mean, I was standing on in the range here this morning, and you know, three media people come up and asked me about. Uh, about an event that's never played, right? And I said, hey, for, for my own sanity, I, I'm not afraid of media. I answer any question anytime anybody asks. But could we just have a week where the women have the greatest moment of their life and we actually cover that? I mean, Jack Nicholas deserves a week that's about Jack Nicholas and Workday for writing the check to do that. Prometica, you know, is the first corporate partner in USJ 127 year history. So I'm happy to have this conversation some other week, but I, I feel like we've spent enough time talking about PowerPoint presentation when somebody else has written a check for us to actually be here this week. That's a good point. Sorry, that sounded, that sounded more angry than I am, but for what it's worth. <laughs> no, I, I, I was curious about the purse increases. It's both a, the biggest story this week, but also not necessarily like the defining story of, of you guys. Do you see it as the biggest story for you guys this week? The fact that you'll pay out more money than has ever been paid out for, for a women's event before? I hope not. I mean, I, I think that's great. I'm very proud of that. And, uh, you know, I've said publicly that we're at 10 million this year, but we'll be at 12 in, in just a few years, not in a few decades, but in a few years. So this is 10 on its way to 12 pretty quickly. Um, but I also know every, I, I know 70% of the athletes teeing it up today. And I know them really well. And uh, I know they're playing for history more than they're playing for the check. They're excited about the check. I mean, I don't know. I don't know anybody on that range who wouldn't like to see me on Sunday when I hand them a $1.8 million check. Um, but they also know that the U.S. Women's Open is life changing. It was before 10 million and it will be long after 10, 11 or 12 million. Um, this is a chance for you to etch your name in, in the game. And um, you don't get many chances like that. And if you're, you know, when you're young, you assume you do, but you learn pretty quickly that you don't. So yeah, it's, um, I'm excited. Uh, I've, um, I've said publicly when I was the LPGA commissioner, I need the USGA and governing bodies like them to be the ones that push the rest of the women's game forward. So when I, when I walked into the office, I didn't, it wasn't fair of me to take that jacket off and put another one on. So I felt the pressure to live up to what I had said. Um, and I've worked pretty hard, pretty fast to bring this to light because I know by us going to 10, um, if you're a $1.6 million purse on the, on the LPGA, you probably go, wait a minute. I mean, I, I thought that was plenty. Um, I'm, I feel great if we're the pre people that made that group uncomfortable and feel like they got to push a little bit. Um, but I don't, um, but I don't think women's golf has ever been about the money. I don't think men's golf has ever been about the money. I think this we're going to stop talking, you know, we, we'll stop talking about purses as soon as we stop talking about purses. But but I'm proud that they, um, I think more importantly, when they when they pull in here this week, we, we, we valet park their Lexus courtesy car that they're driving. They walk over to a player in Caddy Station that has hyperbolic chambers, masseuses, barbers, 
Um, it's um, I, I want to treat them like like the best athletes on the planet because you know three thousand of them tried to get into this event. One hundred fifty six did. I think this week ought to feel like I really made it. And I've said this to a lot of players this week. You already made the cut in my mind. Getting in this event is so much harder uh, than making the cut this week. And they're going to get paid whether they make the cut or not in a pretty significant way. So, uh, yeah, this is I hope this isn't about the money. But we do. I do realize that the money says something about how we value them and how we want other people to think about supporting women's uh, sports and hope that reverberates. But that won't be the story come Sunday night. One of those things I think that women in golf have cared about in recent years has been literally just bringing their major championships to the courses that we cherish, to the biggest courses that the men have played and made golf history at. Uh, I've talked to numerous LPGA players about it, that we want to go to these courses. And I think it's fair to say that the last 10 years, the USGA hasn't always brought the women's open to the, the, the highest level courses where a lot of men's golf history is at. But you look in the next 10 years, the next 30 years, you guys are going to Pebble, Oakmont, Pinehurst, Olympic, like the where golf history has been made. And I was just curious if that is like a concerted effort that you really want an extremely level playing field when it comes to both the women's open, the men's open, bring them all to the best places in the world. 100%. I've, I've, I've said this publicly and I've said this privately an awful lot in my first year. We don't need host sites for the men's U.S. Open. We have those. We have, you know, hundreds of thousands, certainly thousands would host. And so we have, you know, we have a handful of sites that think all I want is the men's open every eight years. And if that's all you want, we're not coming anymore. Um, What I need is partners in growing the game. So if you want to join me, uh, Pebble, then we're going to do amateurs together. We're going to do boys. We're going to do girls. We're going to do men. We're going to do women. We're going to do professional. We're going to do amateur. Um, because we're going to be partners in growing the game. That's what we meant when we talked with Pinehurst and Pebble and Marion and Oakmont and Oakland Hills. When we're announcing these sites, if you look, we're not announcing men's U.S. Open coming to Marion X number of times in the next 20 years. We're announcing 12 different championships. So I think what you won't see much of from the USGA is a location that only hosts a U.S. Open. Because if you're going to host a U.S. Open with us, you're going to be a partner in growing the game. And a partner in growing the game means growing the game, not just taking the, the really big payday and the really big moment of the And You know, a 12 year old girl playing in the U S girls uh, junior amateur deserves the same dream, you know, as, uh, as Rory. And we're going to give it to her. I love that. Mike, I, I am obligated to ask as uh, a newish <laughs> Seattle resident, I've got Chambers Bay on my wall right here. Where does Chambers Bay? We've got the the U.S. Women's Am coming here this year. People are really excited for that. Where does Chambers Bay fall in terms of uh, in terms of USGA partners and friends? I actually don't. I mean, I, 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 when you said that, I was thinking. I know we're coming like in twenty eight or twenty nine. I don't know. If, I can never remember what we've announced and what we haven't. Like when you were talking about U.S. Women's Open sites. I've got like five in my mind that I know we'll announce in the next couple of years, but I'm not really sure. We've set up so far here. Yeah. Um, So um, yeah. So there's a, there's a selection committee and and I'm not on that. Um, That selection committee kind of comes to me uh, and to, and the rest of our board with their choices. So I can't really, uh, can't really speak to the specifics uh, there. And if, even if I knew them, I'd still give you the answer. I just did um, because that's my job, not to, not to make sure I spoil anybody's surprises, but um, but yeah, we're, we're committed. I mean, if you think about this year, we're going to Alaska, 
and Puerto Rico, which will complete the mm. USGA over the 127 years playing in virtually every state and US territory of Puerto Rico. I'm excited about that. So we feel a commitment to make sure we bring the game throughout the US, not the four sites in the US. Well, this is that was just like writing to your senator. I just was obligated to do it. So I appreciate you humoring me. That's why I gave you a senator answer. <laughs> Mike, I am based here, oddly enough, in St. Andrews right now. And I just walked by the RNA this morning and I was preparing for this interview and I'm like, I wonder how the USGA relationship with the RNA works. Like, is that a, is that a tricky relationship to, to, to lead the game from opposite parts of the world with just different cultures, but try to move forward in lockstep with a different governing body? Is it, is it easy? Is it tricky? Um, you know, this is going to sound like a glib answer, but uh, uh, not for me. I mean, I've known I've known Martin um, well before I walked into this job. Uh, he was critically important to me to, to uh, sort of take over the Women's British. And together we, you know, we worked on AIG, you know, and um, uh, when we when we decided to merge with the LET, he was the first guy I called to say, would you help? Uh, both a little bit financially, but more importantly, join the board and help us grow the game in Europe. So to me, I've been, Martin was a partner of mine in the game before I ever became with USJ. So the first time I sat down as the head of the USJ and he was the head of the RNA, it was uh, just, you know, just another day for me. I literally talked to him at uh, 1030 my time this morning. So we talked quite a bit. Um, we're friends, I think, before we're leaders of the game. I think the reason it's um, it's not as tricky as you would envision is um, when you have the same I've always talked about this, like I've really done nothing big in the game of golf except sell my vision to somebody who's got more power than me. You know, so whether that's talking to the PGA of America and KPMG and saying, what if, and then get out of the way and let them create the KPMG Women's PGA um, or talk to Martin about the Women's British and get out of the way and watch him build a women's uh, major that's quite, quite special. Um, so for me, when I sit down with Martin, we talk about what do we both want to achieve for the game? Those things are really common. And then if we argue about how we get to common goals, I find that really enjoyable. I, I'm not sure. That's, a, that's probably a, a DNA dysfunction. But my team knows, like, I hate meetings where nobody yelled at each other. Like, I like a good amount of friction oh, as long as we're that. arguing over getting mm -hmm. to the same place. I, I really don't enjoy staff meetings where everybody just says yes and and we move on. So uh, I, I enjoy Martin because he um, he is fully committed to leaving the game better. And he, like me, he's old enough, and I mean this in a positive way, that he doesn't think about what he's going to do over the next 25 years. He thinks about what he's going to do in the next three to five. Mm. And I've always sort of had this uh, patience dysfunction. And so I love the fact that um, we both realize that um, we feel the we feel the clock ticking and wanting to make sure that we leave the game better for our kids' kids. And so when you start there, it's pretty easy. I have found the distance challenge that everybody told me, don't go to the USJ until they do the distance thing. Why would you join now? I found the distance thing has been really enjoyable because I really feel like I have a partner in the in the RNA and I feel like together we push each other. But um, by the time we come out, we've already we've already critiqued each other so much that that media or player feedback seems uh, redundant because we've already done that to each other. That's really interesting. So do you feel like, yeah, any any criticism that you've heard, you've already given yourself essentially? For the most part, I mean, sometimes you'll, you'll you know we'll hear something that we we didn't envision. It takes us down a different path. But you know, from the very beginning, you know, the 
uh, I don't know why I walked into distance. You guys were doing a nice job not talking about it. And <laughs> here I am bringing it up. But, um, but you know, from the very beginning, you know, Martin and I both agreed that the core goals were let's address distance at the highest level. And while we're doing that, let's try to make sure that we leave the recreational game as untouched as possible because of what's going on in the recreational game. And then in the middle of that kind of process, we started thinking maybe we can even create some opportunity for the recreational game in terms of how we think about equipment testing. And maybe if we if we think about some of the areas of equipment testing that's limiting innovation for the average or beginning golfer, we could, while we're addressing distance at the highest level, maybe we could actually create a little bit, ease back a little bit and create some more innovation at slower swing speeds. And so it's uh, it's really evolved all coming from sharing the same common objective. This is maybe a, a silly question or two zoomed out, but what is your job, Mike? What's the point of your job? And then to a, a larger extent, what's the point of the USGA? What, how do you see those two missions? I mean, as you guys see, I already have a problem with short answers. So now you're throwing me up, you know, <laughs> now you're throwing me. We're going to have to have an intermission on this one, but you have the floor. <laughs> so so it's, it's funny you say that when I got to the USGA, I said about the end of my first week, we're a 127 year old brand with an awareness issue. And somebody goes, what are you talking about? I said, none of you guys, even with USGA on your shirt, do a nice job describing what it is that the USGA do does. And I've now, I've now sat on enough planes with the USGA sweater on, when somebody looks at me and goes, hey, you're a golfer. What is it you guys do again? I'm thinking, we're 127 years old. Nobody knows what we do. So, um, so I give away these ball markers every time I'm on the road. It's like a USGA ball marker with a middle pop yeah, style. Yeah. But on the back, yeah. I've changed the letters of USGA to unify, showcase, govern, and advance. Um, so in externally, if people want to call us the United States Golf Association, that's okay. But internally, we talk about unify, showcase, govern, and advance. And if we're not talking about one of those four things, you don't have my interest. So unify. Wow. We spend about $12 million a year in world handicapping system, gin app, course ratings, all designed to unify this game around the world. There's no other sport where I can get off the plane in Thailand walk onto a golf course and play with a 12-year-old girl and a 65-year-old man, all of us pull out our app, compare our handicap, and actually have a game, have a competitive, fun game. Try that with soccer or baseball or, or basketball. I mean, it's just physically impossible. Yeah. So we spend millions of dollars together with the RNA to unify this sport so that it's, it's fun no matter – you know, my wife is just learning the game. If I wanted to, I could have a game with her. I mean, she wouldn't, but I mean, we could because we've, we've spent millions of dollars unifying the game. And I think when people say this is the number three handicap of this whole, they don't think of anybody who figured that out, but that's us. Or when people say I'm a 7.6, they don't think about the technology that it took to, to do that, but that's us. Uh, you know, or if somebody, uh, you know, if somebody says they're in Spain and they're going to fly to London tomorrow and play in a golf game, they don't think about how simple that is in golf and how they could never do that in uh, in any other sport. So um, so we spend 12 million on that. We, we have 15 championships a year. That's all about showcasing, showcasing players at the best time in their playing career. And by the way, best I, I'm a better golfer today than I was when I was 26, unfortunately. So the best time of my golf career is now. And so there's a senior amateur for me if I want to take a run at that. So whether you're young, you're old, you're male, you're female, you're professionally amateur, whether you're disabled or full-bodied now, we've got a championship for you. Um, again, not something that I think baseball could pull off. There isn't a, a senior women's amateur in baseball, um, but there is in golf. And we're very proud of that. And uh, we showcase those. So even though this is the biggest stage in the world for women's professional golf, there's just as interesting a stage for women's junior amateur or a men's senior. So 15 championships. As you can see, I'm only through the U, the U and the S so far. 
Um, so, <laughs> gee, we govern the game. Everybody knows that. I always say you may not love your police officer and your cop, but the game needs a cop. And together with the RNA, we're the cop. But the, but the purpose for us to be the cop isn't to zap anybody. It's to make sure that just like Unify, no matter where you play the game and when you play the game, we all play under the same unified common set of rules. And um, again, you can argue with the rules just like you can argue about whether or not something was pass interference in a football game, but at least we all play by the same uh, rules. And so our job, whether it's equipment standards, whether it's amateur status, or whether it's the actual rule book, together with the RNA is to govern the game. The, the A, and the thing that quite frankly, if I'm being honest with you guys, the thing that I, I struggled the most with the USGA about, and I'm gonna work to change the most, is being about advancing the game. And what I mean by that is, I think in the past, the USGA used to think of themselves as the great check rider. Um, if the if first tee wants to get launched by the PGA Tour, we'll be the largest check rider. If the LPGA wants to start girls golf, we're going to be your largest check rider. If the PGA of America, you know, wants to launch, you know, uh, an event, we'll be the largest check rider. So, um, and I think we sort of answered, what do you guys do to advance the game is, yeah, we cut checks to a lot of people. <laughs> and that's okay. And we're going to keep cutting checks. But I can promise you, we're going to be about major advancement ideas, what I call BBLs, big, bold leadership initiatives, things that you'll spend tens of millions of dollars, not tens of thousands of dollars over decades to be about. And so you'll hear about over the next year, um, three or four of what we call BBLs. So they're going to be multiple decades, uh, tens of millions of dollars investment, uh, all designed to make sure that the game is better in the next 30, 50, and 70 years. So if you go all the way back to your original question, what's my job? My job is to be the only guy in the game that wakes up every morning worrying about 70 years from now. Everybody else has to worry about seven days from now. How do we get from, from the memorial to, to the Canadian Open? How do we get them from the U.S. Women's Open you know, to the next event on the, to, to the, to the ShopRite Atlantic City? Uh, you know, Seth has to worry about 29,000 professionals and vocations and jobs. My job is to make sure that when my kids have kids and those kids join the game of golf, it's a better, more thriving game than it is today. Um, and I need to be that voice because it's hard for the other leaders of the game to make that their priority. It needs to be our priority. And so uh, it will be. That was a five minute answer and a really good one the entire time. So I really like that, Mike. Glad you I answered asked. one question <laughs> that uh, a lot of my friends, they always ask me, why do I got to pay $40 a year so I have a handicap? <laughs> You just answered it. It costs money to run the USGA, yeah. $12 million a year just for the handicapping system. Just the handicapping and course rating system. But I'm not, I'm not complaining, but it's, no. uh, it's a big lift, you know? And by the way, when that, when that person writes the check for 45 bucks for the handicapping system, we get $3 of that. The rest goes to a local state or regional fund to kind of keep them running, you know, the Florida State Amateur or running, you know, qualifiers or, or being able to put on, you know, events within their region. So it's our sort of gift back to what we call allied golf associations that we provide the technology, you sell it. We only need three bucks from it. You take, if you charge 45 bucks, you take 42 of that and run your allied golf association the way you want to run it. But it's, um, it's one of the things we consider our gift back to the game to make sure the game's better. Love it. Well, Mike, you've been extremely generous with your time. Um, we hope you have a great week at pine needles by the time this airs, I think you already will have had a great week. Uh, yeah, I mean, is there any, any final thoughts on what this week means and on what you're most excited about this week? You know, it's funny when I, when I told everybody I was leaving the LPGA, in fact, when I told my wife, I was leaving the LPGA, her comment to me at dinner was, so I told her obviously before I told everybody else. And she said, I'm curious what you'll miss the most, um, when you stop being commissioner, cause she knows I liked it. But I also, after 12 years, I was, 
I used to always say that being commissioner is like being in a relay race and somebody gives you the baton. It's not your tour. It's not your brand. You just, you just gifted it for a while and run as long, as hard as you can. And when you feel yourself slowing down, put the baton in some other highly caffeinated person's hand and let them run for a while. And uh, so I felt myself slowing down and I felt like for the, for the game's sake, it was time to let somebody else hop on a plane 47 weeks a year and, you know, spend three months of their life in, in Asia. And, you know, it's, it's what it takes. So she said, what do you miss most? And I said, I'll miss my front row seat at, at women having the greatest moment of their life when they're having it. Like I could stand there on the 18th green and watch a putt go in and see the look on that family and that player's face. And that was, they recognized in a lot of cases, they were achieving something greater than they ever dreamed. Like they just didn't envision winning the race to the CME globe. But my point is, you know, a lot of times, you know, no, nobody when they were 12 dreamed of what they just achieved. It's, it's bigger than that. And it's, it's pretty special for a guy that didn't have that kind of sports moment. I mean, I had, I had my, my moments, but looking back, none of those were at this level. I always say that I'm, I'm always sitting across the table from 200 of the best female golfing athletes on the planet. And I'm not the best 200, anything on the planet. And so it's, it's just a really cool front row seat. And, um, and so, you know, my wife said, what do you miss most? And I said that. So in a weird way, when I ended up getting a call from the USGA and taking this job, um, I'm not missing the thing I miss most about being the, the commissioner. I mean, Sunday here and, you know, Sunday in Boston and then Sunday at Saucon Valley for the, you know, senior. It's just, um, I still get these incredible front row seats. And no matter how hard you work, how many planes you're on, no matter how many times you have to balance a budget, you know, no matter how many times you hate doing, you know, personnel reviews and, you know, in a in performance review season, you kind of come back to, but man, do you got an incredible front row seat at dreams coming true. And uh, so I don't miss that anymore in the LP, at the LPJ because I have that at the USGA. Whole nother set of issues, whole nother team, whole nother set of challenges, which is exciting for me. But I got to keep the thing that I like the most. That sounds great. All right. Well, you'll see our uh, colleagues, Zephyr and James, out there this week. We'll see you at, well, I guess I'll see you at Brookline. Hopefully, I'll come up and get to shake your hand um, in a couple weeks. But, Mike, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, guys. Thanks for covering the sport. All right, gang. That was Mike Wan, USGA CEO, who's in the middle of an absolutely busy stretch uh, between the U.S. Women's Open and then the U.S. Open at Brookline next week. Hopefully, he finds some time in there to lobby for the U.S. Open, U.S. Women's Open to come back to Chambers Bay. Um, I actually got out there this weekend with my brother who was in town. It's become my favorite thing to do in Seattle, actually, is bring people who have never been to Chambers Bay down there for an afternoon round and uh i mean it just it just never disappoints there's just nothing else quite like it so anyway we'll be back next week it won't just be me in the booth uh i'll bring some friends in the meantime pick up some radmore golf gear for yourself that's r-a-d-m-o-r golf.com use code drop zone at checkout for 25 percent off thanks for listening thanks to our pal connor on the ones and twos We'll see you next week.